Chapter 6 The War Day 2, June 6th Israeli advances and Arab retreats America on war and peace Big lies and ceasefires Though 53 years old and paunchy, the director of Israel's Nature Protection Society, Avraham Yoffe, was a seasoned fighter in Sinai. In 1956, he had led an infantry column down the peninsula's eastern coast to capture Sharm al-Sheikh. Later, as head of the Southern Command, he developed contingency plans for moving tanks over desert wastes that were widely believed insurmountable. Summoned a few weeks before the war by General Gavish, Yoffe had arrived at camp in civilian clothes, thinking he was making a courtesy call. He returned in a brigadier general's uniform and took charge of the 31st Ugda with its two reserve brigades, each with 100 tanks. His assignment was to penetrate Sinai south of Tal's forces and north of Sharon's, dividing the two fronts and preventing enemy reinforcements from reaching either. Then, dashing eastward, he would attack Egypt's second line of defence while its first was still busy fighting. Yoffe's initial objective, taking the vital road junctions of Abu Aguila, Bir Lahfan, and Al-Arish, had already been accomplished before midnight. We received information that two Egyptian armoured brigades were approaching, Yisachar Shadme, commanding twenty-four centurions, later related. They had turned off all their lights, and my Ford observer reported, I can't see them. I told him, shoot blindly, and our first barrage blew up seven vehicles. The Egyptians then spread out in the dunes, and a bitter battle ensued, lasting from 11 p.m. to 10 a.m. the next morning. Israeli planes completed the work begun by Shadmi, and by midday the desert was strewn with burning wrecks. The Egyptians fled westward toward Jabal Libni which the Israelis regrouped to attack. The thrust to Egypt's centre enabled Tal and Sharon to complete the unfinished business of the previous day, conquering the Jiradi defile, Khan Yunis, and the bastions at Um Katef. Each of these battles was savage. Having pressed a frontal attack through Abu Aguila, Sharon's centurions launched their main thrust against Um Katef, the main Egyptian redoubt, only to find the approaches thickly mined and cratered. When IDF engineers finally cleared a path at 4 a.m., Israeli and Egyptian tanks engaged in intense combat at ranges as close as 10 yards. Forty Egyptian and 19 Israeli tanks were left side by side, smouldering. Kuti Adams' infantry, meanwhile, completed its clearance of the triple-tier trenches. Israeli casualties were 14 dead and 41 wounded, as opposed to the 300 Egyptians killed and 100 taken prisoner. Sharon's men passed the morning cleaning up around Um Katef and preparing to seize Al-Qusayma in the southeast. Meanwhile, to the north, Colonel Gonen's tanks managed to smash through the Girardi Pass again to link up with Ford elements stranded on its western side. These, however, had not waited for relief, but had advanced to the outskirts of Alarish. Gonen rushed to reunite with them, and, after receiving supplies via airdrop, proceeded to Alarish Airport, which he captured at 7.50. Yet the battle was far from finished. We entered the city at 8 a.m., intending to cross it and reach the coast road. Alarish was totally quiet, desolate, recounted Company Commander Yossi Peled. Suddenly the city turned into a madhouse. Shots came at us from every alley, every corner, every window and house. While detailing several units to clear out Alarish, Gonen split his force three ways. A column of tanks, engineers and artillery under the command of Colonel Yisrael Granit continued down the Mediterranean coast toward the canal, while a second force led by Gunen himself turned south to Bir Lahfan and Jabal Libni. Colonel Aitan and the paratroopers of the 35th Brigade were detailed for the conquest of Gaza. Much as Diane had feared, the fighting in the area from Khan Yunis to Ali Muntar Ridge was brutal, accounting for nearly half of all Israel casualties on the southern front. But Diane's prediction that Gaza, once severed from Sinai, would quickly fall, proved correct. By mid-morning the Israelis had already captured the Egyptian headquarters in the city and had begun mopping up operations. For the Egyptians on the front lines, the Israeli offensive was devastating. 
The 2nd Division had been badly mauled and isolated, while the 7th and 20th Divisions had essentially ceased to exist. Thousands of vehicles had been destroyed, their flaming hulls lined the roads, illuminating them at night, and hundreds immobilized by mechanical failures, as Soviet-made engines proved unsuitable to desert conditions. At least 1,500 soldiers had been killed. Reconnaissance officer Adel Mahjoub, having fled from Umm Katef, reached Bir Hassana before dawn, only to find it burning and totally destroyed. Those soldiers still alive were left without food. There was no petrol for the vehicles, and no ammunition for the weapons. It was like a journey to hell. At Jabal Libni, reconnaissance officer Hassan Bakhat watched as Egyptian artillery opened fire on thousands of soldiers advancing toward him from the west. An hour later, one of those soldiers reached us, and we found out that he was Egyptian. Our guns had destroyed Egyptian soldiers retreating from Abu Agela. Harassed by enemy artillery, the Egyptians were hounded throughout the day by continuing airstrikes. Azam Shirahi, a security officer at the Bir Gafkafa airfield, recalled how, on the second day, Field Marshal Amr spoke with the base commander and asked him to repair the runway quickly so that new planes could be sent. We all went down to try and repair the runway, but the bombings continued. The anti-aircraft guns fired at the Israeli planes without respite, fired until their barrels melted, but with no effect. Many of the pilots were killed, along with many aerial defense soldiers and officers. After that, no new planes arrived, and no one opposed the Israelis. The few Egyptian jets that did manage to get airborne, such as the two Sukhois that strafed Gonen's supply trucks that morning, were swiftly set upon by Israeli squadrons. Yet for all this destruction, the Egyptian army in Sinai was far from vanquished. Over half of Nasser's forces were still intact, and important elements, the 3rd and 6th Divisions and the Shastli force, had yet to fire a shot. Hundreds of pilots were available to fly once new planes were secured, and 48 Algerian MiGs were already en route to Egypt, along with volunteer forces from Morocco, Tunisia, and Sudan. Expressions of support also poured in from Egypt's sympathizers around the world. We are highly indignant of the action of Israeli reactionary agents of the United States and British imperialists, wrote Vietnamese communist leader Ho Chi Minh in a personal wire to Nasser. They are doomed to ignominious defeat. An official Soviet statement proclaimed resolute support and complete confidence in the Arabs' just struggle against imperialism and Zionism. The Egyptian people, listening to Cairo radio, were informed that their army had wiped out the enemy attacks on Kuntilla and Khan Yunis and was penetrating enemy territory. These circumstances contrasted sharply with Israel's. Unlike the majority of Egyptian soldiers, the bulk of the Israeli invasion force and planes had been in almost constant combat for over 24 hours. They were tired and low on ammunition and fuel. Politically, both Britain and the United States had declared their neutrality in the conflict, and France embargoed further arms shipments to Israel. Though morale improved after Rabin, in a 1 a.m. radio broadcast, finally informed the Israeli public of the IDF's successes in the air and on the ground, that admission increased the chances of an internationally imposed ceasefire. Preparing for that contingency, Rabin acknowledged that Israel would have no choice but to honor the UN's decision, albeit mostly in the breach, until minimal objectives could be achieved, especially in Sharm el-Sheikh. We'll find the war coming to an end before we get our hands on its cause, Diane exclaimed to his generals. His orders to Rabin, issued at 7.45 a.m., were precise. Complete the conquest of Gaza, clear the Alarish axis, advance west but remain four miles at least from the canal, prepare to attack southward toward Al-Qusayma. He considered sending Mendler's column in a race from Kuntila down the Red Sea coast, but in the end settled on a combined airborne and naval assault. This would be launched no later than the following night, June the 7th. As for the 6th, the southern front would continue to occupy Israel's main attention, the entire day dedicated to the thorough treatment of Egyptian armor. Ironically, the Egyptians did not share the Israelis' assessment of the situation. Ironically, because both Nasser and Amr saw it as far more desperate than it really was. 
Rather than calling for an immediate halt to the fighting and focusing international pressure on Israel, Cairo continued to claim victories for its forces advancing through the Negev. Rather than rallying their still extensive forces, digging in during the day and counter-attacking at night when the IAF's edge was blunted, Egypt's leaders ordered a wholesale and wildly disorganized retreat. The question of who exactly issued that order would divide Egyptians for many years to come. Apologists for Nasser, among them Hassanein Haikal and Anwar Sadat, insist that the initiative was solely Amers, that the president learned of it only belatedly and then tried to rescind it. Amers' defenders admit that he gave the instructions, but assert that Nasser was fully informed of them and concurred. Both sides agree, however, in tracing the order to 5.50 on the morning of June the 6th, when General Fautzi received a copy of a wireless message from Amer directing the garrison at Sharm al-Sheikh to prepare to withdraw westward. Shortly before noon, the field marshal began calling for a fallback to the second line of defence, but at 5 p.m. he summoned Chief of Staff Fautzi and gave him twenty minutes to draw up plans for a general retreat. Fautzi was convinced that Amer had acted on his own, but Amer and Badran later testified that Nasser personally approved the order. Fautzi, at any event, was crushed. In spite of the deep psychological blow dealt the army, he believed that the conqueror plan was still operational. Israeli forces, blooded by the first line of Egypt's defence, could still be drawn into the second line at Jabal Libni and Bir al-Tamada and crushed. Fotsi was not alone. Virtually the whole general staff agreed. Earlier that morning, when Amr had phoned Murtagi, inquiring in a quavering voice, How fair our forces? the Sinai commander had replied optimistically. Only four brigades had been lost out of fourteen, he assured Amr, and three of them were still holding out at Umm Katef. Additional troops, the Soviet Union's, or, as in 1956, the UN's, were sure to intervene soon. Sir, if you reinforce the northern axis, we can hold out until foreign forces come to secure the canal. He never suspected that Amr was thinking retreat. Yet retreat was precisely his intention, as Fortzi presently found out. He and Operations Chief Al-Qadi drafted a plan for a gradual rollback to the Giddi and Mitla passes and a concentrated defence of the canal. The withdrawal was supposed to have taken three days, Murtagi remembered. The 4th Division was to have remained at the Straits. The next night that division's place would be taken by the 6th Division, and on the third night the 6th would pull out and be replaced by a reserve brigade. The strategy appeared workable, given the circumstances, yet Amr rejected it on the spot. "'I gave you an order to withdraw,' he shouted. "'Period!' No longer waiting for a written plan, the field marshal telephoned his cronies in Sinai. "'Make sure that all the planes you have left are ready and waiting by 1300,' he instructed Sidki Mahmud. "'You are to undertake no missions other than providing aerial cover for the 4th Division until it gets west of the canal.' Other protégés he merely advised to evacuate by whatever means and as quickly as they could. Major General Uthman Nassar, for example, commander of the 3rd Infantry Division, told his officers that he had an urgent meeting in headquarters, packed up and left. He was later seen frequenting cafés in Cairo. But most officers would learn of the order only by hearsay. The direct lines between them and Fotsi's headquarters had all been severed before the war on Amr's explicit instructions. Amr would later justify his decision by citing the collapse of Egypt's air power and the fall of the first line of defence. Withdrawal was the only way I could prevent the army from total destruction and captivity. But the results of the order were precisely that, as a massive army assembled over twenty-four days attempted in as many hours to retreat. The battalion commander summoned us and told us that we had to pull back, remembered Mohammed Ahmad Kamis, a communications officer with the 4th Division. It came as a total surprise. My soldiers' morale was high, in preparation for the attack. How was I to face them? Telling them nothing, Kamis had his men drive through the night. Suddenly, as dawn rose, my driver looked out and saw the canal. We have retreated! We have retreated! He started screaming, weeping with astonishment and fear. Other units were less fortunate— Jammed on roads with thousands of vehicles, tens of thousands of men, 
Many Egyptians became easy prey for marauding Israeli jets. The aerial cover ordered by Amer never materialized. The arcane and convoluted relationship between Nasser and Amer had finally translated into anarchy in the field, their honor irrevocably tarnished by the loss of their air force, of Gaza and northern Sinai, neither man had the will or the presence of mind to effect damage control. Neither had the skill to execute an organized retreat, always the most difficult of military maneuvers. Perhaps they believed that the face-saving myth of 1956 would repeat itself, and that the retreat could be spun as a tactical maneuver necessitated by overwhelming imperialist odds. Maybe they hoped that so dramatic a setback to Soviet arms would impel the Russians to intercede. Ultimately, though, the question of why the order was given, and who, Nasser or Amr, issued it, became moot. The Egyptian army was running. Watching that flight from Bir Lafan, Colonel Avraham Bren, Yoffe's second-in-command, and a veteran of the two previous campaigns in Sinai, was stupefied. You ride past burnt-out vehicles, and suddenly you see this immense army, too numerous to count, spread out of a vast area as far as your eyes can see, he told IDF debriefers after the war. It was not a pleasant feeling seeing that gigantic enemy and realizing that you're only a single battalion of tanks. Diane, tracking the course of the war from the pit, was no less puzzled. Though Israel had gained command of the skies, Egypt's cities were not bombed, and the Egyptian armored units at the front could have fought even without air support. Intelligence Chief Yariv, reporting to the General Staff that afternoon, revealed the radical change that had transpired in Sinai. Our pilots report that the Egyptian army is in bad shape, retreating en masse on roads partially blocked by our earlier airstrikes. Chaim Barlev stressed the need to press on with the destruction of Egypt's army, but with the enemy fleeing faster than the IDF could follow, how was this to be done? There was no planning before the war about what the army would do beyond the Alarish-Jabalibni axis, not even a discussion, General Yoffe recalled. Nobody believed that we could have accomplished more, or that the Egyptian collapse would be so swift. Nobody believed we would have four uninterrupted days of combat. We were thinking in terms of a surgical operation. The questions of where to lead the army, how far, and with what objectives, were all addressed by Shaike Gavish at dusk, when he convened his three Ugda commanders, Sharon, Tal, and Yoffe, at Jabal Libni. Gavish's strategy was to prevent the Egyptians from stabilizing their second defense line and mounting a possible counterattack on Alarish. He wanted to hit them hard and then beat them to the passes, destroying what remained of their tanks. Accordingly, Tal's forces were to overwhelm the Egyptian positions to the west of Jabal Libni to attack Egypt's 3rd Division east of Bir al-Tamada and the 4th Division at Bir Gafkafa. Yoffe, striking south through Bir Hassana and the remnants of the 3rd Division, would divide his force into two columns, one each to the Gidi and Mitla passes. Farther south, Sharon would block Shazli's retreat at Nachl before driving the rest of Egypt's army into Tal and Yoffe's ambushes. Colonel Granit's column, meanwhile, would continue to advance along the Mediterranean coast, through Romani en route to Kantara. But there would be no conquest of the canal itself, at least not yet, for political reasons. Once Gavish gave us our orders, Yoffe recounted, the course of the rest of the war became obvious. Though some unexpected turns might occur, the 4th Division might be waiting for us, or worse, we were essentially in a pursuing operation— the battle was already decided. Egyptian leaders appeared to agree, at least with regard to the military struggle. In the wake of the retreat, Egypt's emphasis swerved from tanks and guns to political propaganda, specifically the charge of U.S. and British intervention for Israel. Here, at least, the coordination between Nasser and Amr was complete. Both held conversations with Soviet Ambassador Pojdaev, evincing the collusion claim as a means of securing direct Soviet support. Amr, unable to furnish proof of U.S. and British attacks, accused the USSR of supplying faulty weapons to Egypt. "'I'm no expert on weaponry,' Pojdaev replied, "'but I do know that the arms we've given the Vietnamese have certainly proved superior to the Americans.' But Nasser left little room for debate." 
he simply dictated a direct letter to Kosygin, informing him that the Sixth Fleet, together with U.S. bases in the region, was actively aiding the Israelis. The Jews now stood to reap a great victory, unless Moscow extended similar help to Egypt, which was desperately in need of planes. The myth snowballed rapidly as the day progressed, reaching all corners of the Arab world. British bombers, taking off in endless waves from Cyprus, are aiding and supplying the Israelis, Damascus Radio declared. Canberra bombers are striking our forward positions. Radio Amman claimed that three American aircraft carriers were operating off Israel's coast. American warships were reportedly sighted off Port Said, in Haifa Harbour, and blocking the entrance to the canal. Other sources spoke of Israelis piloting American planes with CIA-supplied maps of Egypt and of American pilots flying incognito for Israel. Captured Israeli pilots purportedly confessed to collaborating with the U.S. Israel, which had attacked Egypt with 1,200 jets, could not possibly have acted alone, so the argument ran. In a widely distributed communique, Nasser called on the Arab masses to destroy all imperialist interests. Within hours of the broadcast, mobs attacked American embassies and consulates throughout the Middle East, in Baghdad and Basra, Aleppo, Alexandria, and Algiers, even in congenial cities such as Tunis and Benghazi, American diplomats barricaded themselves in their compounds and prepared for the worst. Oil facilities were shut in Iraq and Libya, while Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, and Bahrain banned oil shipments to the United States and Britain. America is now the number one enemy of the Arabs, proclaimed Algiers Radio. The American presence must be exterminated from the Arab homeland. Americans in Egypt, many of them long-term residents, were given minutes to pack, and then, at gunpoint, searched and summarily deported. This is how people felt on their way to Auschwitz, wrote Thomas Thompson, a life correspondent who was among the hundreds banished. In Cairo, Richard Nolte watched as an angry crowd gathered outside his office. We are burning all, repeat, all classified papers, and preparing for demonstration and attempt to enter building, he wired. Yet at the height of this tension, Nolte was summoned and escorted to the Egyptian Foreign Ministry, there to be told the facts of the Anglo-American conspiracy with Israel. You say you are against aggression, but when you have aggression of Israel against Egypt, you do nothing, Mahmoud Riyad excoriated Nolte. You say you don't know who is the aggressor. It is perfectly clear who is the aggressor, and there are ninety or at least eighty ambassadors in Cairo who know this to be true. The ambassador's only reply was to stress the international sympathy Egypt could reap by accepting a ceasefire resolution that would specifically label Israel as the aggressor. Mohyeddin could then come to Washington as planned, and a diplomatic solution could then be found for the Straits. But his words failed to impress the foreign minister, who continued in a similar vein. If Egypt had been the aggressor, the Sixth Fleet would now be on its shores. Convinced though he was of America's complicity in Israel's attack, Riyadh opposed any rupture of relations with Washington, with which Egypt would have to conduct the post-war negotiations. Nasser, however, dissented. He recalled Egypt's embassy staff from Washington and announced the severance of all diplomatic ties with the United States. Six additional Arab states, Syria, Sudan, Algeria, Iraq, Mauritania, and Yemen, quickly followed suit, and ten Arab oil-producing states banned exports to the U.S. and Britain. In Damascus, Ambassador Smythe was given 48 hours to leave the country, and until then was confined to his residence. Nolte wrote, Thus endeth my meteoric mission to Cairo. Politically, at least, Nasser was succeeding, where militarily he had capitulated, rallying the Arab world around his leadership. And yet that victory remained incomplete as long as one Arab state, Jordan, failed to follow Egypt's lead. Once reviled as an imperialist tool, Hussein had become for Nasser our heroic and nationalist brother, and the brave little king. Enlisting the monarch in the charge of Anglo-American collusion would have powerful repercussions in the area, especially among Arab allies of the West. Nasser needed Hussein's cooperation, but Hussein had concerns of his own. The Charnel House 
That night was hell, Hussein recounted in his memoirs. It was clear as day. The sky and the earth glowed with the light of the rockets and the constant explosions of the bombs pouring from Israeli planes. In the darkness, the king shuttled between his headquarters in Amman and his still-secure positions at the front. The latter were dwindling steadily. In Janine, where Colonel Khalidi's infantry and Major Ajlouni's three surviving tanks were holding off substantially superior Israeli forces advancing from both the north and the south, relief arrived unexpectedly at 4 a.m. in the form of two battalions from the 40th Armoured Brigade. Having slipped through undetected by the Israelis, the 4th Armoured Battalion reinforced Khalidi in defending the city, while the 2nd Battalion blocked the Israelis at Arabeh to the east. At the cry of, Fight for Allah! Brigadier Al-Ghazi's patterns charged with every gun blazing. A mechanized battalion, the Amir Abdallah, equipped with M113 armored personnel carriers, also joined the fray. One after another, Israeli vehicles burst into flames, and the tide began to shift. The enemy allowed our forces to get within close range and fought us bravely and stubbornly, remembered Moshe Bar Kokhfa, the Israeli brigade commander. Al-Ghazi was already thinking of moving from a defensive to an offensive strategy, consolidating the remainder of the 40th's patterns and driving the Israelis back across the border. Then the sun rose, and the Jordanians were again exposed to the sky. Israeli jets and artillery dropped a two-hour barrage on Al-Ghazi's men, killing ten and wounding two hundred and fifty, many of whom had to be left on the field. Only seven tanks, two without gas, and sixteen APCs remained to limp eastward to the Tubas Road and then south toward Nablus. Barkokhva's armoured forces, together with Avnon's infantry, meanwhile blasted their way into Janin. Resistance proved obstinate, especially around the city's police fort, where Bar Kokhva himself was wounded. Not until noon could the Israelis claim functional control over the city, the key to the northern West Bank. The Jordanians were losing ground in the Jerusalem theatre as well, in the hills west of the city, though one of Harrell's column ran into strong opposition outside Bidu, one Israeli and twenty legionnaires were killed, and another lost most of its tracked vehicles to boulders, five Shermans reached Nabi Samuel at 2.55 a.m. Waiting for them there was a company of Jordanian patterns, which, after a fifteen-minute battle, were driven off with their external fuel tanks aflame. The road was now open to Beit Hanina, a suburb of East Jerusalem situated only five hundred metres from the Ramallah-Jerusalem highway. Mount Scopus was virtually secured. General Narkis, however, could not afford to believe that. He was convinced that the 60th Brigade still posed an imminent threat to Jewish Jerusalem. Soldiers on Mount Scopus reported hearing tanks approaching, and had begged for additional airstrikes. Barlev at first declined the request, explaining that Israel's pilots were exhausted, having flown five missions in less than twenty-four hours. But Narkis could not be put off. Without air support, he argued, Jerusalem would be lost. Tired or not, they have to knock out that armour. Yet even after the IAF wrought havoc among Brigadier Bin Shaker's tanks, the Central Command Chief remained sceptical. Unsure how many enemy vehicles survived, he refused to take any chances with the fate of Mount Scopus. The garrison would be relieved, as planned, by the paratroopers. Blocking that effort were the strongest fortifications in Jerusalem, a ganglia of trenches, bunkers, minefields, and concrete obstacles known since World War I, when General Allenby stored his ordnance there, as Ammunition Hill. The Israelis perceived the bastion as a direct threat to Mount Scopus and the western half of the city, while for the Jordanians it represented a first-line defence against any Israeli assault on the east. The soldiers on both sides of that line, Israelis and Jordanians, had been under continuous shell-fire for many hours, yet their morale remained commensurately high and their vital supplies undiminished. The scene was set for a gruelling battle when, at 1.25 a.m., Mota Gur's paratroopers moved quietly into position. Gur's men were to divide into three forces. The first would cross the no-man's land, near the Mandelbaum Gate, the UN checkpoint between the two sectors of the city, and assault the police academy that guarded the southern approaches to Ammunition Hill. The second group would proceed east, 
through the neighborhoods of Sheikh Jarrah and the American colony to reach the Rockefeller Museum, while the third followed the ravine of Wadi Jos up to the Augusta Victoria Hospital on the ridge midway between Mount Scopus and the Mount of Olives. At battle's end, it was hoped, Israel would not only be free of any Jordanian threat, but also be poised to enter the old city. Jerusalem is not Al-Arish, Nakis told the paratroopers just prior to the attack. Let's hope this time we'll atone for the sin of forty-eight. At two-ten in the morning, the Jerusalem sky was again illuminated, this time by intense Israeli artillery, tank, and mortar fire to soften up the enemy line. Giant searchlights placed atop the Labor Federation building, West Jerusalem's highest, further exposed the Jordanians and effectively blinded them. Thus heralded, Battalion 66 under Major Yosef Yossi Yoffe, a farmer in civilian life and a veteran of the 1950s retaliation raids, crept up to the first line of barbed wire and blasted their way through. But beyond that row lay another, and four more after that, none of which appeared on the IDF's maps. The attackers were caught in no man's land, in a blistering crossfire and under a rising moon. We made our way, Bangalore torpedo after Bangalore, fence by fence, squad by squad, Arik Achmon, the paratroop intelligence officer, remembered. And the most difficult battle had yet to begin. Before us lay Ammunition Hill. Seven Israelis were killed, and over a dozen wounded before the last of the wires were cut. Only at 3.10 did Gur, anxious about the approaching dawn, receive the signal that Yoffe's men had broken through to the police academy. Gore replied, I could kiss you. Built by the British during mandate times and later passed to the UN, the police academy was believed by the Israelis to house Atta Ali's main headquarters, and was therefore heavily defended. In fact, the area was manned by a single company, 140 men, of the 2nd Al-Husseini Battalion under Captain Suleiman Salaita. With the covering fire from two Shermans borrowed from the Jerusalem Brigade, Israeli engineers cleared a path for the assault units which, over the next two hours, destroyed some thirty-four bunkers and machine-gun nests. Still, the Jordanians fought, stalling the Israeli charge just fifteen metres from Salaita's position. The captain, with seventeen killed and forty-two wounded, ordered an artillery barrage on his own position, and with those of his men still able, fell back to nearby Ammunition Hill. The battle for the police academy also proved costly for the Israelis, only a squad of whom remained fit for further fighting. Reinforcements arrived, however, and the paratroopers proceeded to Ammunition Hill, attacking it from three directions, west, east, and centre. Sir, the enemy has succeeded in penetrating the area to the left of the police academy, Private Farhan Hamman reported to Major Mansour Cranshaw, in charge of the Ammunition Hill defences. There is a tank column and two companies of infantry. The platoon commander says he has things under control, but requests artillery support. But the artillery barrage proved insufficient to stop the oncoming Israelis, nor did reinforcements from the police academy arrive, only Jordanian wounded. Still the defenders managed to thwart the attack, throwing grenades and charging with Bren guns, hollering, Allah Akbar, God is great. The point Israeli squads were all but annihilated. One of their three Shermans was knocked out. The other two could not depress their guns low enough to fire at the submerged Jordanian positions. Unable to call for artillery support without endangering themselves, with their packs too wide to manoeuvre through the enemy trenches, the paratroopers were compelled to advance without cover over open ground, and one by one they fell. Fire leapt at them not only from Ammunition Hill, but also from what the Israelis called Mivtar Hill, another Jordanian stronghold across a wadi to the west. Most of our casualties were not from hand-to-hand fighting, but from grenades and gunfire from more distant positions, testified one of the battle's veterans, Johanan Miller. Soon nearly all the Israeli officers and NCOs had been hit and their units scattered. Yet improvised attack teams continued to advance through trenches clogged with bodies. By 4.30, first light, they had reached Cranshaw's bunker. The battle is now hand-to-hand, the Major radioed, Atta Ali. Ammunition is running low. You will no longer hear from me, but I hope you will hear about me and my men. Atta Ali responded, May you have a long life, my friend. 
and approved Cranshaw's request for an artillery bombardment of the entire area. Though badly wounded in the leg, Cranshaw exploited the diversion to gather his surviving troops and escape through the last open venue, north to Shu'afat Ridge. Behind him, employing twenty-one pounds of TNT, Israeli engineers blew up his bunker. The battle for Ammunition Hill, one of the bloodiest in Arab-Israeli history, was over by 5.15 a.m. Seventy-one Jordanians were killed and forty-six wounded, most of them seriously. Thirty-five Israelis, a full fourth of Yoffe's force, also died. While Yoffe's men began the conquest of Ammunition Hill, the paratrooper brigade's remaining battalions crossed the city line. The 28th Battalion, under Yossi Fradkin, while waiting for the sign to advance, was ravaged by 81mm mortar fire and suffered 64 wounded and dead. Severely delayed, short on men and equipment, the battalion nevertheless managed to cut through no man's land to East Jerusalem's American colony. From there, the paratroopers were scheduled to move toward the Old City through the lightly defended Salah al-Din Street. Though highly experienced in combat, during the 1948 and 1956 wars, Fradkin had never fought in Jerusalem. Our soldiers almost never knew what was expected of them, he told fellow officers after the war. They didn't know where we were taking them. They didn't know the place. Instead of heading down Salah al-Din Street, he made a wrong turn onto Nablus Road, where the Jordanians were waiting in force. Having spotted the Israelis' advance from Ammunition Hill, Major Cranshaw called Captain Nabi Shkimat, commander of the Nablus Road sector. "'The enemy's tanks are coming in your direction,' Cranshaw warned him. "'Be prepared to fight on a large front, house to house, to the last man and bullet.' Shkimat made ready, beefing up his bazooka and anti-tank gun crews in the triple-tiered bunkers facing Nablus Road. The Israelis blundered into a maelstrom. The tanks fired point-blank down the street, wave after wave of paratroopers charged, but the Jordanians held their ground. They were like drunkards, exhausted and lost, Mahmoud Abu Faris, a company commander in the 2nd Al-Husseini Battalion, described his assailants. We fought out of faith, not on orders. One Israeli officer, he claimed, tried to tackle him, but Abu Faris cut off his ear, then shot him with his pistol. However robust, Jordanian resistance gradually gave way to Israeli firepower and momentum. Platoon commander Ghazi Ismail Rubaiya remembered trying to raise the morale of his five remaining men. I failed. I looked into their faces and saw what a soldier sees before death. Rubaiya radioed battalion headquarters but got no answer. Shkimat had ordered his men to withdraw to Muzrara, a neighborhood abutting the old city, leaving forty-five dead and 142 wounded. The scene was no less hellish for the Israelis. Suddenly the street turned into a slaughterhouse, Yigal Nir, a paratrooper averred. In seconds everyone around me was hit. Having not felt fear before, the transformation was drastic. I felt abandoned suddenly and hopeless. Only thirty men, half of the original force, crossed the six hundred metres from the American consulate to the YMCA. Simtat Hamavet, they dubbed it, the Alley of Death. More fortunate was the 71st Battalion, which succeeded in breaching the wire and minefields and emerged near Wadi Joz at the base of Mount Scopus. Its commander, Major Uzi Elam, a Chicago-trained engineer and another veteran of the retaliation raids, had been disappointed about his unit's transfer from Sinai. When they told us we were going to Jerusalem, I felt a keen disappointment, he confided after the war. Clearly we were not going to parachute there, that we would merely guard the border. But then, when the shelling started, we realized that this was something serious, that there was going to be war. From Wadi Joes, the Israelis could cut off the old city from Jericho and East Jerusalem from Ramallah. The one remaining route to the West Bank, eastward through the suburb of Al-Azariah, was zeroed in by IDF artillery. Israeli shellfire also deterred the Jordanians from counterattacking against Elam, from their still formidable positions around Augusta Victoria. Confident, a detachment from the 28th Battalion ventured toward the Rockefeller Archaeological Museum, a gleaming castle-like structure on the old city's northwestern corner, which it took at 7.27 after a brief skirmish. 
This, Gore believed, was the ideal jumping-off site for the final assault on the old city, to be effected through the nearby Herod's Flower Gate. Along with three Hebrew University archaeologists anxious to protect the museum's relics, the paratrooper commander moved his forward headquarters to Rockefeller. He found that the area was still dominated by Jordanian snipers, and that his brigade was seriously depleted. Nevertheless, he asked Narcissus' permission to penetrate the gate immediately. The answer was negative. The cabinet had yet to make a decision on Jerusalem. Gur, furious, contemplated ignoring the government. By obeying my orders not to enter the old city, would I not reap sorrow for generations and shame on the IDF, which was arrayed just outside the walls? But Narcis managed to assuage him. Our goal is to surround the city and force its surrender, he explained. Conversely, surrounding the city will be a staging ground for capturing it. The paratroopers were to regroup at Rockefeller and prepare to take Augusta Victoria Ridge later that afternoon. While Gore's men rested at Rockefeller, Uri ben Ari and the 10th Brigade broke through to the Ramallah-Jerusalem Road. At Tel al-Ful, a rocky knoll on which construction had begun for Hussein's newest palace, the Israeli Shermans fought a vehement, running battle with as many as thirty Jordanian patterns under Captains Dib Suleiman and Awad Saud Aid. The Jordanians succeeded in thwarting the enemy advance and in destroying a number of half-tracks, but ultimately a combination of Israeli air power and the vulnerability of the Patton's external fuel tanks proved decisive. Leaving half their tanks smouldering, Suleiman and Aid withdrew toward Jericho. Thereafter, the 10th Brigade joined with the 4th and descended through the Arab neighborhoods of Shu'afat and French Hill, through the Jordanian defences at Mivta to emerge at Ammunition Hill. So swift was their thrust that forces in the Israeli side of the city, mistaking them for Jordanians, shot at them. Confusion ensued as tanks and their crews wandered the streets looking for a battle. We didn't know what had been captured and what wasn't, recalled the paratrooper's deputy commander, Colonel Moshe Peles. We knew nothing. Israeli historians would later question whether the struggle for Ammunition Hill was truly necessary, whether the tanks' prompt arrival had rendered superfluous the sacrifice of so many lives. Such second-guessing comes easily in the clarity of a classroom, but viewed from Narcisi's perspective, through the fog of battle and the belief that Jordanian patterns were still approaching, the assault on Ammunition Hill appeared the best means of rescuing Mount Scopus. The manoeuvre further established a double encirclement of Jerusalem, infantry on the inside surrounded by an outer armoured ring. By midday on June the 6th, a Jordanian army dispatch reported that the enemy has conquered all of Jerusalem except for the old city. The news came as no surprise to Hussein. If we don't decide within the next twenty-four hours, you can kiss your army and all of Jordan goodbye, General Riyadh had warned the monarch just before dawn. We are on the verge of losing the West Bank. All our forces will be isolated or destroyed. The Egyptian commander of Jordan's armed forces had posed two possibilities— either accept a ceasefire at once, or order a general retreat. Both options were drastic, but perhaps unwarranted. Jordanian troops remained in control of the old city and most of East Jerusalem. Israeli advances in the West Bank were confined to Latrun and the Janine area. Even without air cover, the army could have conceivably held out until a ceasefire was arranged, assuring that most of the West Bank remained Jordan's. The situation, as such, was analogous to Egypt's in Sinai, and, as in Egypt, passions obfuscated reality. No sooner had he heard the general's advice, when Hussein summoned the ambassadors of the U.S., the USSR, Britain, and France, and told them that his regime would not survive one hour without an immediate end to violent attacks. Hussein was once again caught between clashing rocks— Acceptance of a formal ceasefire would be tantamount to a declaration of surrender at a time when Egypt was still fighting. The Palestinians would riot, and even the army might revolt. Yet retreat was no less perilous, as Nasser could use it as a pretext for withdrawing his own troops and blaming Jordan for the collapse of the Arab war effort. Jordan could have more difficulty maintaining law and order after a ceasefire than in the absence of one, was Burns's assessment, 
What if Nasser calls for Hussein's overthrow so that Jordan can continue the battle? Hussein's solution was to seek a secret understanding with Israel on halting the fighting, or, better yet, an internationally imposed ceasefire. Phoning Burns in a state of near hysteria, he claimed to have only fifteen minutes to make a decision on whether to evacuate the West Bank. If we do not withdraw tonight, we will be chewed up. Tomorrow we'll leave only the choice of ordering the destruction of our equipment and leaving every soldier to look out for himself. Asserting that Nasser had blundered terribly, no one anticipated that the conflict would escalate so far and so fast, and that Riyadh was pretty much running the show in Jordan, Hussein assumed none of the blame for the situation, and denied that his troops had fired first on civilian targets. His sole concern was in obtaining an immediate end to the violence. He avoided the term ceasefire, without which his regime would fall. Over the course of the night, Hussein conveyed no less than four requests for a de facto ceasefire, but each time the response was negative. I believe it is probably too late to arouse any interest in Israel for the preservation of Hussein and his regime, Barbour explained from Tel Aviv. Citing the continuing battles in both the Jerusalem and Nablus sectors, the Israelis claimed that Hussein had either lost control of his troops or was trying to deceive them into cancelling their attack. While it supported a halt to the fighting, Washington's reply to Hussein was no warmer. Either take personal charge of your army or else remain a target. Gravely disappointed, desperate, the king retorted with a warning of his own. If the fighting continued, Jordan would have no option but to corroborate Nasser's charge of Anglo-American conspiracy. It was not an idle threat, as Hussein proved a half-hour later when a phone call arrived from Cairo. "'Will we say that the U.S. and Britain are attacking, or just the United States?' asked Nasser, inquiring whether the British even had aircraft carriers. Hussein responded, "'United States and England,' and agreed to issue a statement to that effect immediately. Nasser was heartened. "'By God!' he exclaimed. "'I will make an announcement, and you will make an announcement, and we will see to it that the Syrians will make an announcement that American and British warplanes are taking part against us from aircraft carriers.' We will stress the matter, and we will drive the point home. The discussion ended with the Egyptian president urging the king not to give up, though the fighting was indeed hard. We are with you with all our hearts, and we are flying our planes over Israel today. Our planes have been striking at Israel's airfields since morning. Made on an unscrambled civilian line, the UAC's sophisticated communications equipment had never been installed, the conversation was recorded by Israeli intelligence and widely distributed. Hussein, in any case, never denied the call, and Egypt's al-Ahram confirmed it publicly. The king and the president agreed between them that the entire Arab nation must be informed of this important development, and to adapt its position accordingly. Jordan had received special dispensation from Nasser to maintain its relations with the United States, but that exception would come with a price. Hussein had become party to what Johnson would dub the Big Lie. The claim of a Western conspiracy to aid Israel helped Hussein mollify the Palestinians and preserve Jordan's alliance with Egypt. Militarily, though, his position continued to deteriorate. Despite repeated requests for assistance from Syria and Saudi Arabia, and repeated assurances that both had sent forces to Jordan, no such assistance arrived. Syria's 17th Mechanized Brigade got as far as the border, but refused to move farther, its commander first claiming that he needed to reconnoitre the area, and then that he lacked instructions from Damascus. The absence of orders was also the excuse proffered by Saudi forces, which similarly stopped at the border. An Egyptian military doctor attached to the Saudis, Dr. Munir Zaki Mustafa, bitterly recalled, We hoped that one Israeli plane would attack us, so that we could say that we participated in the war and we fired our guns, but for naught. Only Iraq's 8th Brigade tried to engage in combat at across the Damya Bridge, but there it was bombarded by Israeli planes and decimated. The IAF also destroyed a PLO battalion and attacked the H-3 airbase in western Iraq, Hussein's last hope for air cover. Though two of their mirages were shot down, the Israelis left behind rows of smoking MiGs and Hawker Hunters. 
By noon, a despondent Hussein asked Riyadh to inform Field Marshal Amr of the truth. The situation on the West Bank is becoming desperate, the general wrote. The Israelis are attacking on all fronts. We are bombed day and night by the Israeli Air Force and can offer no resistance. The Jordanian, Syrian and Iraqi Air Forces have been virtually destroyed. Riyadh concluded by reiterating his belief that, in the absence of a UN-imposed ceasefire, Jordan would have to withdraw its forces from the West Bank or suffer total defeat. Hussein had reconciled himself to this realization as well when, at 12.30, he sent a follow-up cable to Nasser. In addition to our very heavy losses in men and equipment, for lack of air protection our tanks are being disabled at a rate of one every ten minutes, and the bulk of the enemy forces are concentrated against the Jordanian army. To this situation, if it continues, there can be only one outcome— you and the Arab nation will lose this bastion, together with all its forces, after glorious combat that will be inscribed by history in blood. In spite of his reluctance to accept either an open ceasefire or sanction retreat, the king was ready to relinquish his prerogatives and let Nasser decide. Yet as the afternoon waned, no such decision arrived. In the interim, Israel's offensive thundered on. General Peled's tanks around Janin were now preparing to continue south to Nablus, as another Israeli column advanced on the city from Kalkilia to the west. Just outside Jerusalem, the 10th and 4th Brigades occupied Ramallah with its 50,000 inhabitants. In Jerusalem itself, the 163rd Infantry Battalion under Lieutenant Colonel Michael Pekas attacked Abu Tor, a heavily fortified Arab neighborhood overlooking the old city's southern wall. The fighting was vicious. Seventeen Israelis were killed, Pikas among them, and fifty-four wounded. But the IDF secured the area, thus severing the old city from Bethlehem and Hebron to the south, while Israeli forces descending from Ramallah would soon cut the last open road to Jericho. By the late afternoon of June the 6th, the bulk of Jordan's army was in danger of being stranded on the west bank. Riyadh, usually calm and even-tempered, he never missed his afternoon nap, even during the fighting, now argued loudly with Hussein over the king's refusal to approve evacuation. "'My hardest job has been to play Uthant to you,' the general carped. Exasperated, the king bolted out of his headquarters, commandeered a jeep, and raced down to the Jordan Valley. There he encountered the remnants of the 25th Infantry and 40th Armoured Brigades retreating from Janine. I will never forget the hallucinating sight of that defeat, he later recorded. Roads clogged with trucks, jeeps, and all kinds of vehicles, twisted, disemboweled, dented, still smoking, giving off that particular smell of metal and paint burned by exploding bombs, a stink that only powder can make. In the midst of this charnel house were men, in groups of thirty or two, wounded, exhausted, they were trying to clear a path under the monstrous coup de grace being dealt them by a horde of Israeli mirages screaming in a cloudless blue sky seared with sun. Hussein thought to inquire about Ali bin Ali, a cousin serving with the fortieth, but loath to exploit his station, the monarch kept silent. While their sovereign fretted, Hussein's troops continued fighting. Behind the old city walls, Atta Ali was determined to hold out. Though he had only two heavy mortars left, there were rations and ammunition to last him and his men for two weeks. He set up headquarters in the Armenian quarter, placed fifty soldiers at each of Jerusalem's seven gates, and waited for the Israeli attack. It came just after seven that night, though the Israeli's target was not yet the old city, but yet again Augusta-Victoria Ridge. Fradkin's 28th Battalion, aiming to reach the ridge via Wadi Joz, took a wrong turn and found itself under the parapets of the Lions, St. Stephen's Gate. Murderous fire rained down on the attackers. Four Sherman tanks, caught on the narrow bridge linking the Garden of Gethsemane with the Church of Jehoshaphat, were hit as they tried to turn, as were three jeeps from the paratroopers' recon company. In all, five Israelis were killed and twenty-five wounded, while survivors huddled for cover in the depressed yard of the Virgin's tomb. Observers on Mount Scopus, meanwhile, reported sighting a convoy of forty patterns advancing through Al-Azariah, en route to the Mount of Olives. 
Gore, fearing that the entire force would be caught in open ground, with their backs literally to the wall, ordered Fradkin's men back to Rockefeller. Israel's attempt to completely surround the old city and force its garrison to surrender had failed, for the Jordanians' valuable time had been bought. The inability of the Israelis to reach Augusta Victoria should have provided a fillip to Hussein, strengthening his aversion to retreat. That action, though, had far less impact on Jordan than on Israel, where military and civilian leaders were deep in debate over the pros and cons of conquering the old city. At stake were crucial considerations of time and world opinion, of Israel's relations with the UN and the United States. Equally pressing was the apparent kindling of yet another flashpoint, not in Sinai or in the West Bank, but on the northern border with Syria. Damascus and Jerusalem The Syrian shelling of Israel's northern settlements, unabated since the previous day, went largely unanswered. Residents of those settlements, comprising the country's largest lobbying group, continued to pressure the government to act, their cause championed by Labour Minister Yigal Alon. Oxford graduate, elite forces commander, and hero of the 1948 campaign against Egypt, the 49-year-old Alon had promised the farmers that the war would not end with Syria's guns still trained on them. In promoting an operation to eliminate those guns, Alon could count on at least implicit support from Eshkol. The former Galilee farmer and water expert, Eshkol had deep sympathy for the northern settlers and an abiding interest in the Jordan headwaters. From the moment war broke out, Eshkol showed special apprehension regarding the north, recollected Colonel Lior. In every consultation and every discussion, he would ask three or four times, "'What's happening up north?' I think he went a little crazy with it, constantly bothering people about the Banyas, one of the Jordan River sources. Twelve times a day he'd ask, "'What about the Banyas?' But not all Eshkol's ministers shared his Golan obsession. Zalman Aran and Chaim Moshe Shapira, among others, still feared the opening of yet another front and possible intervention by the Soviets, and in this they had a powerful ally in Dayan. The defence minister also expressed anxiety about the Russians, and doubted whether the Northern Command, already committed on the West Bank, had the troops necessary to take the Golan. In conversations with the cabinet ministers, he dismissed the strategic threat posed by Syria. We're afraid of the Egyptians, even though they're far away, because they're very strong, and we're afraid of the Jordanians, though they're weak, because they're very close. But the Syrians are weak and far away. There's no immediate need to attack them. But along with strategic considerations, Diane was also guided by a political interest in safeguarding his exclusivity over all military decisions. Don't interfere with security matters, he warned Alon and the other ministers, Galilee, Carmel, in favour of capturing the Golan. In security matters there's no democracy. If you try to interfere, I'll quit. Diane would sanction only minimal action in the north, occupation of the demilitarized zones and possibly of the Banyas Springs. Yet he told Ben-Gurion confidentially that the Syrians' recklessness was insufferable. Once the other fronts were decided, he said, Syria's turn would come. Diane's position was predicated on maintaining an acceptable level of violence in the north, but at 2 a.m. on the morning of June the 6th, that assumption was substantively challenged. A massive artillery barrage fell from Kibbutz Dan and Kfar Sold at the tip of the Hula Valley to Ein Gev on the southern shores of Galilee. As many as 265 guns rained an estimated 45 tons of ordnance per minute on the settlements. Nearly a thousand shells pummeled the town of Roshpina alone. In an effort to deflect the Syrian fire, IDF engineers ignited barrels of smoke along the border, but the tactic proved only partially effective. Some 205 houses, 14 public buildings, and 45 vehicles were damaged. 16 people were injured and two killed. Launching the salvos were two Syrian battalions, the 129th and the 168th, of 130mm guns, in addition to four companies of heavy mortars and anti-tank weapons. The enemy appears to have suffered heavier losses and is retreating, reported Captain Ibrahim Aktum, 
observation officer in Syria's 11th Brigade, positioned atop Tel Azaziat. At this crucial and historical hour, our forces have begun to fight and to bomb the enemy's position along the entire front, declared Defence Minister al-Assad. These are just the first shots in the War of Liberation. After the enemy's air attacks of the previous day, Syria's confidence was restored by the Israelis' failure to respond to the shelling. Close to midnight, General Headquarters in Damascus received a top-secret wire from its counterpart in Cairo. Our forces are striking Israel and its army fiercely. We have destroyed most of the Israeli planes, and our army is now advancing toward Tel Aviv. Report to us at once on the situation on the northern front and the enemy's disposition. Suwedani quickly called a meeting of the general staff and ordered Operation Victory, the conquest of northern Israel, implemented. The offensive was to begin with a feigned thrust into the tip of the Hula Valley. The main incursion would follow in the south, close to the Sea of Galilee, with three full brigades. The feint began at seven, when troops of the 243rd Infantry Battalion, accompanied by two companies of T-34 tanks, descended from the Banyas toward Kibbutz Dan. The settlement's inhabitants were nowhere in sight, and the Syrians believed the Israelis had deserted. In fact, they were merely in bomb shelters, and when the alarm sounded they ran to defend the perimeter. I came out and suddenly saw six tanks swooping down on us, firing explosive shells straight at us, and then smoke and phosphorus, recalled one kibbutz member, identified in the record as Yossi. That was the signal for the infantry charge. I heard shouting and saw seventy soldiers lined up and charging us from three hundred and fifty metres away. I fired everything I had point-blank and saw how they began to fall. Similar assaults were attempted on other Israeli targets, on Tel Dan and the IDF bunker at Ashmora, each with identical results. Seven Syrian tanks were destroyed and twenty troops killed. An Israeli commander, Colonel Yitzhak Halfon, also lost his life. The probe was repulsed while the main Syrian thrust never materialized. Unfamiliar with the terrain, the commanders of three brigades failed to arrive at the launching site. The bridges over the Jordan were found to be too narrow for the wide-bodied Soviet tanks, and the tanks lacked radio contact with the infantry. Other units simply remained in their camps near Kunetra, ignoring orders to move out. The failure of the attack effectively dissuaded Damascus from pursuing victory further. Any lingering doubts were dispelled by the pounding of Syrian positions by Israeli artillery and jets. The situation at the Syrian front was bad, concluded an internal army report. Our forces did not go on the offensive, either because they did not arrive or were not wholly prepared, or because they could not find shelter from the enemy's planes. The reserves could not withstand the air attacks. They dispersed after their morale plummeted. By the evening of June the 6th, a large part of the reserves had wandered without orders back to base. Thereafter, citing the most severe conditions, continuous aerial bombardment of every sort of ordnance, including napalm, and losses of twenty percent, the Syrians revived their defensive plan, Operation Holy War. The decision did not deter them from mounting a virtual offensive, however. Damascus radio claimed that Shah Yishuv had been occupied, it was not even attacked, and five Israeli jets shot down. The Jews were fleeing toward Haifa, it said, nor was the truth told to the Egyptians. Our forces are conquering the Hula Valley and advancing swiftly toward Rosh Pina and Safad, General Headquarters relayed to Cairo. By day's end we shall surely be in Nazareth. The shelling of Israeli settlements escalated, meanwhile, reaching various levels of lethality throughout the day. Rabin was not impressed with the display, dismissing it as an attempt to refute the allegation, already gaining currency in the Arab world, that Syria is willing to fight to the last Egyptian. He favoured several small operations to occupy the DZs and Banyas headwaters, and to capture POWs later to be exchanged for Israeli pilots shot down over Syria. But the IDF's priorities were still in the West Bank, Rabin concluded, and not on the Golan Heights. That conclusion was hardly to the liking of David Elazar, the northern command chief. Born in Sarajevo, where he and Barlev had been childhood friends, Dedo had moved to Palestine at age sixteen and made the army his home. 
As an armoured corps commander in 1956, he had earned a reputation for gallantry and aggressiveness. Handsome, charismatic, he had gained the affection of Israeli settlers throughout the north, and, reciprocating that warmth, sought to protect them permanently from Syria. According to Dado, the bombardment of Galilee and the attack on Kibbutz Dan were merely preludes to a much larger, deadlier offensive. Though many of his units were engaged in the West Bank, he felt he had sufficient forces to take the northern Golan at least. Elazar had scheduled his attack for the morning of June the 8th, hazy skies were forecast for the 7th, complicating air cover, and was certain that the government would approve it. But while Dedo planned, Dayan continued to oppose fighting on a third front, and risking further provocation of the Soviets. Rabin stressed the need to eliminate the guns shelling Jewish settlements and to capture the Jordan headwaters. Meir Amit insisted that the Americans would support the campaign, but the Minister of Defense remained unshakable. Elazar and his hammer operation would not get a green light. Dayan's clemency towards Syria did not, however, extend to Jordan. Angered by Hussein's rejection of Israel's earlier appeals for quiet, Dayan had little patience for the king's latest requests for a tacit ceasefire. First we finish the work he imposed on us, he told Rabin, then we'll send him an appropriate reply. The work he had in mind was the complete conquest of the West Bank high ground overlooking the Jordan Valley. IDF elements might also descend to Jericho and the Jordan River crossings once the enemy's armor was eliminated. Only in Jerusalem did Diane continue to counsel restraint, rebuffing all suggestions that Israel capture the old city. He would reiterate his position that noon when he and Weizmann joined Uzi Narkis in visiting the newly relieved Mount Scopus. What a divine view, Diane exclaimed, enjoying the stunning scene of the old city with its golden dome and church towers. But Narkis, anxious to receive permission to penetrate those walls, was in no mood for sightseeing. Recalling how, two thousand years before, the Roman general Titus had tried and failed to destroy the Jewish connection to Jerusalem, Narkis requested immediate permission to occupy the old city. Under no circumstances, was Diane's reply. The army could mine the area around the city, surround it, and prompt it to surrender on its own. Breaking through the walls, however, would spark an international backlash that Israel could hardly afford. I want none of that Vatican, said Moshe Diane. The allusion to Rome was not unintentional, word having reached Israel of a papal proposal to declare Jerusalem an open city, inviolate from attacks by either side. The plan swiftly received blessings from Washington, which began to exert pressure on the Israelis to accept a ceasefire with Jordan and desist from entering the old city. To do so now meant not only angering Christians worldwide, but antagonizing the Americans as well. But the army's encirclement of the old city had presented the government with a fait accompli. How could victorious Jewish soldiers gathered just meters away from Judaism's holiest site not try to reach it? This question was weighing on the Ministerial Defense Committee when it next met at two that afternoon. Eshkol, after much hesitation, arrived at an answer. Israeli forces would take the old city, whereupon the government would convene the leaders of all the main churches and guarantee its respect for their shrines. Begin, recalling efforts to reach a ceasefire at the UN, warned, We're liable to remain outside the walls of Jerusalem as we did in 1948. He proposed that the country's leaders, military and civilian, march to the western wall and offer a prayer for the city's sanctity. Igal Alon agreed, Take the city and be done with it. Haim Moshe Shapira's idea was that Israel would appeal to Christian and Muslim leaders to quietly persuade Hussein to surrender the city without further bloodshed. Most ministers reacted cynically to these suggestions. Galilee, for example, demanded that the city be taken immediately, without